One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Radio Westeros, episode 34, Myths and Legends of the North. Spoilers all books! Hello, and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere in Boston. And I'm Yoke Boy, from across the narrow sea. Whether you're an old-time listener or new to the show, we are so glad to have you aboard for today's episode, which is all about the myths and legends of Westeros. Yeah, in our last episode, we started a series on the War of the Five Kings, which will be a three-parter. This series on legends will also be three parts, and we thought rather than taking three in a row on war and three in a row on legends, that we'd mix things up and take turns. Yeah, it might be more interesting that way, we think, as we alternate from the really serious war discussions to a lighter look at legends. The concept behind this legend series is simple. We're going to collect all the legends together by area. So today we're going to have the northern legends. And then in part two, it'll be the southern legends. And go to Essos and the east in part three. And so today we have a detailed presentation on legends of the north. We'll begin by discussing the role that legends play, what categories they come under, and how they relate to northern culture. Then we'll focus on legends from the Age of Heroes, where we'll interpret, analyse and theorise about all the stories such as The Long Night, The Last Hero and Brandon the Builder. Fans of speculation and crackpots are going to enjoy this section, I think. And next we'll look at the Night's Watch, who have many legends, mainly presented by Bran's scary trip to the Night Fort. We'll look at the Night's King, Simeon Star Eyes, the Prentice Boys and the Thing That Came in the Night, Maddox, the 79 Sentinels, the Rat Cook, King Sherrett, and Brave Danny Flint, as well as a weaving discussion about the horror of the Night Fort itself. And finally, we'll go further north still as we analyse Legends of the Free Folk and see what those tales can tell us about their unique culture. We'll cover Joramon and his horn, Arson Isax, the Horned Lord, Raymond Redbeard, Bale the Bard, and the cave-dwelling brothers Gendel and Gorn. And we think today's episode will be a lot of fun, reminiscent of our prophecy episode, if you've heard that one. And we have plenty to say about the myths and legends of Ice and Fire. Yes, we do. And speaking of legends, thanks to each and every patron who continues to support us. We have a tiered reward system where we offer incentives such as shout outs and early release schedules and a whole lot more if you become a patron on a per episode basis. 
check out patreon.com slash Radio Westeros for details. But there are many patrons who simply want to help us and put a value on our hard work here. And Patreon is a really great system for donation and supporting us this way. Yeah, and we currently release seven to eight episodes a year, and you can pledge any amount per regular episode to help keep our ship sailing into the long term. And now we want to shout out our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patrons, John Wigarian and Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Rosa, Rory, Ashley, Laura, Sister Winter, Harry Krishna, and our latest Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Kelly and Lord Commander Daenerys Flint. Yes, so thanks so much to all of you for your support. And now it's time to get started with our Myths and Legends of Westeros series and dive into the Legends of the North. The best fantasy is written in the language of dreams. It is alive as dreams are alive, more real than real, for a moment at least, that long magic moment before we wake. They can keep their heaven. When I die, I'd sooner go to Middle-earth. George R.R. Martin on Fantasy Of his world-building for this epic fantasy series, George R.R. Martin once said, I want to get the feel right, the details right, and give it as much verisimilitude as possible. So he wants his creation to feel very real, for the characters to bleed and the story to breathe. World building is synonymous with epic fantasy, as it's a genre that invites its readers to live within its imagined borders. And for George to achieve the level of realism he desired, he needed to give his world not only a present and a future, but a past too. There are several ways to weave layers of history behind a story, from the creation of in-universe legends to the release of a historical companion book, and all will be considered today. And of course our focus is on the legends, which are an intriguing part of this saga, stories within the story that function on several levels. So, a story within a story is a literary device as old as storytelling itself, and when done well, can be effective on several different fronts simultaneously. Yeah, first off, there's the need for depth and realism that we've mentioned. The inner story can give the outer layer a new dimension, for example, by exposing a detailed world history, such as the snippets we get about Nymeria and her 10,000 ships. They can serve as origin stories, such as Garth Greenhands or Land the Clever. Next, the inner story can be entertaining, both to characters in-universe and also to the reader. Nimble Dick's account of Squishers, for example, amused us greatly through the journey to Cracklaw Point. The inner story might also serve to draw telling reactions out of listening characters, as we see Pod terrified to hear Nimble Dick's tellings, despite his brave facade. And the selection of the story also reflects on Nimble Dick's character. We learn about who he is by the stories he chooses to tell. This is a characterization technique 
often seen in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. And moving on, the stories might actually set the reader up for future events. Old Nan's exposition of The Long Night might be groundwork for history repeating itself later in the novels, letting us know early on the scale of a potential disaster. Then there's stories that carry a lesson, such as the tale of the rat cook with its barbed moral. Finally, and related, legends can tell us a lot about a culture in a small amount of time. Again, we'll point to the rat cook informing the reader of the sanctity of Gesrai in the north, an aspect of culture and a theme that continues to grow in significance. So, whether it be Old Nan, the tales within the Canterbury Tales, or even good old Itchy and Scratchy from The Simpsons, the story within a story has been a staple in storytelling since pen met paper and can serve a multitude of literary functions. It's no surprise, then, that George weaves stories, myths, and legends into his magnum opus quite liberally. Yes, he does. And so there's plenty of reasons for George to include legends in A Song of Ice and Fire. They answer the call for this story within the story, and they also bring with them a mythical and mysterious element. Some of today's subjects are better understood and historically verifiable, such as Raymond Redbeard. But most are shrouded in the mists of time, like Brandon the Builder, whose truth remains an interesting puzzle. The true definition of legend. But both are somewhere on the historical to legend continuum, perhaps at opposing ends, and we will be focusing more on the myth and the legend end of that scale today. And today's analysis will focus on the North, including the tales from the wall and beyond. The North is a place of great tradition and history, which should make for rich pickings when it comes to legends, and George doesn't disappoint. Today we'll see an ample collection of legends from the place seemingly most affected by the Long Night, which some say occurred around 8,000 years ago. Yeah, the Norse law is beautifully crafted to reflect a kingdom tied tightly to the Age of Heroes, who built a gigantic ice wall that still stands proudly today, and who only capitulated to the Targaryens with the threat of Dragonflame. The air of independence breezes through their culture until Rob Stark is crowned King in the North in the attempt to overthrow Southern Yoke forever. With this abundance of tradition and autonomy, it's little wonder the Northern story is punctuated by tales and legends and histories that add the depth and verisimilitude that George intended. And now, sweet summer children, it's time to visit Northern Legends, beginning with the Age of Heroes. The Age of Heroes lasted for thousands of years, in which kingdoms rose and fell, noble houses were founded and withered away, and great deeds were accomplished. Yet what we truly know of those ancient days is hardly more than what we know of the Dawn Age. The tales we have now are the work of septons and maesters, writing thousands of years after the fact.
The world's story begins at the Dawn Age, when the land now known as Westeros was inhabited by two species currently driven to near-legendary status by their scarcity, giants and the children of the forest. The first men joined them via the Arm of Dorne, led by the first king, according to northern legend, and a war with the children of the forest ensued until peace was sealed with the pact. Historians of the Citadel mark this as the beginning of a new age, the Age of Heroes. With the Arm of Dorne now broken, and with the children of the forest retreating into nature, the first men found themselves with a large and diverse domain in which to inhabit. In the Age of Heroes, petty domains and kingdoms were commonplace, but with the construction of wonderful buildings and in a time where legendary founders set great precedents, the foundations for modern Westeros with its mightier kingdoms were set. However, the World Book is careful to note the inconsistencies in recorded histories regarding the Age of Heroes. Despite modern Westeros taking so much inspiration from this era, there's little to distinguish fact from fiction. In-world, historians give conflicting information on events within the Age of Heroes that can diverge by thousands of years. One only has to consider all that's happened in our own world over the last couple thousand years to understand how the contradictions at the Citadel can affect the provenance of the tales that are told. There were no annals of history being recorded back then, at least not in the form that were immune to the passing of time and the changes of culture, language and understanding. As Samuel Tully says to Jon Snow, The oldest histories we have were written after the Andals came to Westeros. The first men only left us runes on rocks. So, remembering it was the Andals who brought the Faith of the Seven, it was their Septons who began to record the Age of Heroes thousands of years after the events. And even holy men are not impartial. Maestri Andal insinuates they recorded in accordance with their own preference and had bias and faults like any other man. They were selective with details and sometimes even added their own. In the main books, we occasionally see a device called the Unreliable Narrator whereby Sansa has kissed the hound and Arya names Joffrey's sword Lion's Paw. In the world book, the device of unreliability is far more widespread, but it's more the unreliable historian than the narrator. And perhaps the most unreliable of all were the singers, whose concern was not history but entertainment. They might have changed details of lore, quote, beyond all recognition, for the sake of a warm place in some Lord's Hall. So, to think that the singer's words might have been spread until they ended up in ink in some historian's thesis is to understand that the records of the Age of Heroes are as much song as fact. Yeah, such distortions of information have made anachronisms out of legends such as Simeon Star Eyes and Serwin of the Mirror Shield, who were knights and king's guard respectively, apparently thousands of years before those things were even possible. However, for mystery writers, contrived doubt is a very powerful tool. We can't reject the songs without discarding the bases of fact too. There is a core truth to these legends, one George would rather obfuscate for the time being. 
This not only allows for sceptics in the universe and out, but it also enables him to hide great mysteries right before our eyes. And so the mists of time allow for mysteries and intrigue, which are the cornerstones of legends. The Age of Heroes is covered by a curtain that the author doesn't want us to fully see behind because it facilitates myth and legend while maintaining realism regarding the recording of our own early histories. George has said that no one can even say for certain if Brandon the Builder ever lived. He's as remote from the time of the novels as Noah and Gilgamesh are from our own time. And with the Age of Heroes, we can see George is attempting to sow some of that mystery, intrigue and doubt into his world. And there's no time so mysterious as the Long Night. Thousands and thousands of years ago... A winter fell that was cold and hard and endless beyond all memory of man. There came a night that lasted a generation, and kings shivered and died in their castles, even as swineherds in their hovels. Women smothered their children rather than see them starve, and cried and felt their tears freeze on their cheeks. In that darkness, the others came for the first time. They were cold things, dead things that hated iron and fire and the touch of the sun and every creature with hot blood in its veins. They swept over holdfasts and cities and kingdoms, felled heroes and armies by the score, riding their pale dead horses and leading hosts of the slain. All the swords of men could not stay their advance, and even maidens and suckling babes found no pity in them. They hunted the maids through frozen forests and fed their dead servants on the flesh of human children. Old Nan provides the reader's initial exposition to The Long Night, which dates back between six and eight thousand years, depending on who you ask. Again, this 2,000-year variable is one of the reasons The Long Night's Volume 2 would be unfathomable and cause great scepticism for most Westerosi. The reader, however, has witnessed the others from the outset and is screaming at Ned to leave Garrett's head on or for Tyrion to take stock of Othor's moving hand. And so, unlike those who cry grumkins and snarks, the reader never harbours doubts about the legend of the others, or the possibility of a recurrence of that dark time from the Age of Heroes. And if the Long Night repeats itself, what horrors await Westeros if the accounts from the Age of Heroes are anything to go by? A winter so complete that children grow into adults and die without ever seeing summer... It's unclear if the others respond to darkness and cold, or else they create it, leading to the underpinning question about the origin of the unbalanced seasons, which the reliable Septon Barth insinuates is magical in nature. And the World Book gave us further insights to supplement Old Nan's tale, mentioning accounts of darkness in Essos and the River Rhoyne freezing. Whether this was the long night of the north spread over the world or other similar events at different times is left for debate. But our own opinion 
favours the former. One darkness, one sword, one hero, known by many names. This is what makes the most sense to us, but still some disagree. Anyway, in creating the Long Night as a past threat looming over the story once more, George has imbued notions of apocalypse into his world. Whereas real-world religious iconography, remembering George's Catholic roots, often associates hell with heat, flame, and fire, George has constructed a hell of ice, snow, and cold. There is a similar notion of eternal suffering, only now it's innocence bound by infinite servitude to icy cruel demons who seek to pervert the only sure rule of life, death itself. If man had not faced his foe and defeated them during the last long night, the world would surely have fallen with it, and so they must band together once more. The Long Night Volume 2 is especially interesting in the study of legends, as characters in the present will be able to channel the information and attitudes from the hazy past. The original Long Nighters were unable to look for a precedent or an example, which would have been all the more terrifying. Fortunately, the Starks, for example, would all have heard Northern Law and Old Nan's tales, and Jon Snow already has access to books and compendiums that outline weaknesses of the others and related tales from the Long Night. And Samwell has arrived at the Citadel where further information on the others surely lies in wait. It's with some irony then, and perhaps with a statement on the value of inherited history and wisdom, that the fate of humanity seeking to avoid a dark and freezing eternal hell lies with the ability to interpret ancient myths and legends correctly. The same legends, historians say, that despite foundations of truth were distorted beyond recognition by means of translation, bias, human error, and hyperbole. This dynamic is indicative of what happens when a short storytelling meets with intricate world-building, the past and the present relating with perfect imperfection here. This is the bigger picture for the in-universe role of myths and legends, adding a brilliant depth to this story. Yeah, and so the present Westeros is required to feed from its past to preserve its future, and perhaps what it needs most of all is a hero to repeat the deeds of a legendary northern figure. And so, on to our first Age of Heroes legendary character. Now these were the days before the Andals came, and long before the women fled across the narrow sea from the cities of the Rhoyne, and the hundred kingdoms of those times were the kingdoms of the first men, who had taken these lands from the children of the forest. Yet here and there, in the fastness of the woods, the children still lived in their wooden cities and hollow hills, and the faces in the trees kept watch. So, as cold and death filled the earth, the last hero determined to seek out the children in the hopes that their ancient magics could win back what the armies of men had lost. He set out into the Deadlands with a sword, a horse, a dog, and a dozen companions. For years he searched, until he despaired of ever finding the children of the forest in their secret cities. One by one his friends died, and his horse, and finally even his dog and his sword froze so hard the blade snapped when he tried to use it. 
and the others smelled the hot blood in him and came silent on his trail, stalking him with packs of pale white spiders big as hounds. The Long Night seems to be a catalyst for legends. Those who fought against it, rebuilt after it, or were otherwise affected by it. Given that the Long Night appears to be centred around the North, it's no surprise that it's had such a lasting effect on that area, where a 700-foot ice wall still stands in monument after all this time. And as far as northern tales of yore go, there's one legendary character involved in the fight against the others who seems to hold high significance. The last hero is mentioned in Old Man's Tale, the passage we just heard. Maester Lewin interrupts the story as the hero is being hunted with seemingly no hope. No sword, no friends, no horse, no dog, no place to hide. Yeah, the audience really wants to know what happened next. But later, Bran is still affected by the tale and where it has ended. And we get this. All Bran could think of was Old Nan's story of the others and the last hero, hounded through the white woods by dead men and spiders big as hounds. He was afraid for a moment until he remembered how that story ended. The children will help him. He blurted, the children of the forest. So George delivers some good news about the last hero and the fragmentation of the story in that chapter allows for further mystery and ambiguity. We don't hear anything of the last hero again for thousands of pages. Just as we're forgetting about him, Samwell uncovers this from the library at Castle Black. I found one account of the Long Night that spoke of the last hero slaying others with a blade of dragon steel. Supposedly, they could not stand against it. Supplementing Old Nan and Bran's story, this single sentence conveys the last hero as a warrior who seemingly discovered the other's Achilles heel, and so he went from being the hunted to being the hunter. And the final exposition of the hero comes from the world book. It says, How the long night came to an end is a matter of legend, as all such matters in the distant past have become. In the north they tell of a last hero who sought out the intercession of the children of the forest, his companions abandoning him or dying one by one as they faced ravenous giants, cold servants, and the others themselves. Alone, he finally reached the children, despite the efforts of the White Walkers, and all the tales agree this was a turning point. Thanks to the children, the first men of the Night's Watch banded together and were able to fight and win the Battle for the Dawn, the last battle that broke the endless winter and sent the others fleeing to the icy north. Okay, so another account which seems to corroborate Old Nan's tale, as well as highlighting the Night's Watch's existence before the Wall and giving some insight on the end of the Long Night. From the information we have, and in terms of storytelling and legends, this seems like quite a straightforward 
peaceful kingdom trope whereby a gallant hero must save the world from impending doom, a version of the hero's journey very commonplace in adventure stories. And let's begin an analysis by considering the name. We wonder if the last hero title is meant to convey the desperation of the time. And in Old Nan's tale, there's this. The others swept over holdfasts and cities and kingdoms, felled heroes and armies by the score. So we see a society that had been losing its heroes in this catastrophe. And so in desperation, with the other heroes maybe all felled, a man steps forward, the last hope, and was thus the last hero, or at least that's what we're speculating here. And onto the tale itself, as we indicated earlier, we find the fragmentation of the story very interesting. In the main books, we have three acts. Okay, so act one. A desperate man searching for help from the children, ultimately alone with a broken sword being hunted by monsters he can't fight. Act two. He finds the children of the forest who help him. Act 3. He is now slaughtering others with a unique-sounding blade. And laying out the bare bones like this helps to see the narrative. In one part, the man couldn't fight the others because his blade was broken by their weaponized cold. He's enduring and suffers loss. In part 2, he takes help from a race sparing ancient wisdom. He's safe from the threat and is gaining something, be it knowledge or weaponry. In part 3... He has a new sword. In the first cycle, it was he who couldn't stand against the others. But in this third cycle, with the boon he received from the children, the roles are now reversed and it's the others who can't stand against him. The man is now a hero and the fact that he suffered early on means that he's really earned his status and so the legend is more enduring. And what's most interesting to us about this structure is how the hero went from gaining help from the children to actually slaughtering the others. In the story and the world book respectively, it's him and the Night's Watch fighting the others, not the children themselves. This lends heavy weight to the notion it was wisdom that they might have passed on. Given the records of Dragonglass being given to the Watch by the children, who had seemingly mastered the substance, which we learn is the other's Achilles heel, it seems likely that the children might have had instructions regarding this obsidian, and even caches with which the Knight's Watch might have tipped their own arrows and spears. Yeah, this seems reasonable enough, but there's still the mystery of the Dragonsteel Blade. We've previously theorized that dragon glass could be an ingredient of dragon steel and that its brittleness could be addressed by some kind of fantasy metal alloying and tempering. Obsidian certainly has a sharp enough edge and as a bonus feature it might be lit aflame as we see with glass candles. A handy quality in the darkness and cold of the long night we think, especially with those whites being vulnerable to fire. And so with talk of a flaming sword we arrive at another legend, this time from the east. While the tale itself is from far afield, the idea that the last hero and Azora High could be the same person described through different cultural lenses is not a new one in the fandom, despite being somewhat divisive. 
Our own theorising takes the idea a step further, positing that not only were the last hero and Azora High the same person, but that Old Nan's tale and the legend of Lightbringer might in fact be the same story. So previously we broke the last hero's story into three parts. In part two, the man gained help from the children. In part three, he was killing others with a unique blade. We wonder if, in between these stages, fits the legend of Lightbringer, as told by Salador Sun. So the children divulge information about Dragonglass and perhaps even about related blood magic. Yeah, and then the man returns home in, quote, A time when darkness lay heavy on the world. To oppose it, the hero must have a hero's blade. Oh, like none that had ever been. Sound familiar? So he ultimately sacrifices his wife in what seems like a blood magic ritual to temper the blade, which it does say is a type of steel, like dragon steel maybe. And then this could join to where the hero is then killing others with his shiny new blade that they couldn't stand against. So that's our idea of how these two legendary tales from across the world might in fact be different chapters of the same story. We'll certainly be going into more detail about Azor High in the future corresponding episode about Legends of the East, and if you like that line of theorizing, a fuller version originated from our Long Night episode, which was episode 8, written many moons ago, where we talked about this notion alongside many similar crackpots about glass candles, others, and oh, you name it. Oh, great times they were, Lady Gwyn. Yeah, we were just sweet summer children back then. Yes, I still am. <laughs> and <laughs> our next character is another legend from the Age of Heroes, a hero for entirely different reasons, but more of a builder than warrior, it would seem. I could tell you the story about Brandon the Builder. That was always your favourite. Thousands and thousands of years ago, Brandon the Builder raised Winterfell, and some said the Wall. Brandon the Builder is perhaps the most mysterious legend from the Age of Heroes. To further the shroud that the mists of time naturally surround Brand the Builder with, George also elects to create many Brandons in the long reign of House Stark. This leaves quite a knot to untangle and quite a legend to behold. And what's interesting about Bran the Builder is that his alleged construction work was not confined to one part of Westeros, making him part of the fabric of Westerosi lore, a hero whose supposed feats can be seen and touched from the north to the south. From the Reach, the World Book informs us of persisting legends regarding Bran's heritage. Yeah, whereas Bran might seem the archetypal northern legend, the Reach ties into their own legendary forebear, Garth Greenhand, who we'll certainly cover in part two of this series. Garth is framed as some sort of forefather to all heroes by the Reach, in this case siring Brandon of the Bloody Gate, Brandon the Builder's supposed father or ancestor. It's easy to dismiss such notions as regional pride, but we do wonder once again if it's more George's style to bury a nugget of truth 
with any fiction in there. In his youth, apparently Bran was already a prodigious architect and craftsman, according to the Stormlanders, after six failed attempts by Duran God's grief to raise walls to his castle, given that he'd anger the god of the sea and the goddess of the wind, a boy offered to help, who would one day become Bran the Builder. With the assistance of this seemingly magical boy, the seventh edition of Storm's End was erected by Duran. We'll spare the details for now, as we'll most certainly revisit Duran in the southern episode, but the fact Storm's End still stands tall to this day, apparently protected not only by the build, but by the magic imbued into its walls, is a testament to those who believe this legend, at least, of the unnatural excellence of the boy Brandon. Back to the Reach, and Bran also gets some credit for Old Town's High Tower, supposedly designing the inaugural Stone Tower. However, some dispute this, claiming, in fact, it was designed by Brandon the Builder's son, named, you've guessed it, Brandon. And moving back to the north, there are two more highly significant feats associated with Bran the Builder the construction of Winterfell and the Wall. These are the two most recognizable structures in the north. Winterfell is an awesome and enduring castle that is seemingly built over hot springs, which speaks to its considered and deft design. And as early as page two of the very first chapter in A Game of Thrones, so from the offset, we're told about the godswood. The weirwood's bark was white as bone, its leaves dark red like a thousand blood-stained hands. A face had been carved in the trunk of the great tree, its features long and melancholy, the deep-cut eyes red with dried sap and strangely watchful. They were old, those eyes, older than Winterfell itself. They had seen Brandon the Builder set the first stone, if the tales were true, They had watched the castle's granite walls rise around them. In the world book, though, there might be clues to a more complex history of Winterfell. It's said that this was the seat of the Stark since the Dawn Age. Either there's an unreliable historian, or this means Winterfell was a rebuild. There is an observation that the castle's structure is peculiar, suggesting it wasn't built as one whole, but added onto, and some scholars suggest it had previously been a ring of forts. And as others do, we speculate this fortress was where the last long night ended, and the others were defeated by a hero with the Night's Watch, remembering their claim to be the Watchers on the Walls. And I'm trying to emphasise the fact that Walls is plural. Winterfell sounds like an apt name for a place, an endless winter uh, fell. Yeah, it certainly does. So we're suggesting Bran the Builder rebuilt an old castle or fortress into a formidable structure after the Long Night as part of mankind's recovery and shield against the other's reinvasion. He's credited as the founder of House Stark in the appendix, yet there's several mentions of Stark predecessors, so we suggest that he might have refocused the family after disaster and been the first to style the house as one of prominence and leadership in its new seat. In A Storm of Swords, John recounts the legend that Brandon had used giants to build Winterfell. 
Finally, Brandon also supposedly built the wall. It's unclear if this was before, after or during the construction of Winterfell. We'd probably favour the latter there. Only that both were after the long night. The first thing to note is that the wall was added to over many thousands of years, so it certainly wouldn't have been completed in his lifetime, rather that future generations contributed to his literal foundations. Yeah, after the long night, an icy horror apocalypse of walking corpses and dead babies, a line needed to be drawn between man and their foes, who had retreated north. That line became the wall, meant to ward away the icy demons. Brandon the Builder, according to Maester Eamon and others, raised the wall. And as per the World Book, he sought the aid of the children of the forest while raising the wall. He was taken to a secret place to meet them. So we can assume the children would be offering ancient wisdoms and magic. Like Winterfell, there's also rumours giants were involved, although for their brute strength rather than magic. The ancient history page of the world book, it's really worth having a look at this, depicts a man and a child of the forest looking on over a scene of giants and mammoths pulling giant ice blocks amidst rudimentary cranes and the beginnings of the wall. Yeah, and that man is surely Brandon the Builder, and as George has highlighted that nobody can truly say if the man existed, so too can we wonder about the provenance of the aforementioned scene. However, we found it to be a surprisingly plausible concept. With the idea of giants being used to aid in the construction of Winterfell and the Wall, a perfectly logical proposition, we only wonder how Bran was able to have so much sway over a large number of giants. Was this due to slavery, magical control, or a more respectable relationship between architect and builders? Overall, Brandon the Builder is the truest type of legend the story offers, where fact collides with fiction, creating intrigue and suspicion in equal measures. It's certainly worth counterweighting the feeling of awe and wonder with what those wretched killjoys at the Citadel have to say. As Brandon the Builder is connected with an improbable number of great works over a span of numerous lifetimes, the tales have likely turned some ancient king or a number of different kings of House Stark, for there have been many Brandons in the long reign of that family, into something more legendary. And given it stated from the offset that the Winterfell Heart Tree witnessed the construction of the castle, Coupled with the World Book's assertion that Brandon the Builder himself prayed in that godswood, perhaps another Bran Stark will soon be able to check the Weirnet hard drive for a glimpse of his legendary ancestor. As an alleged survivor of the Long Night, builder of the Wall, and founder of House Stark, one of our many questions we have of Brandon the Builder is if the famous Winter is Coming motto was his ancient warning of the next Long Night, which, thousands of years later, we are about to witness. Regardless, one doesn't have to look far to see this legend's impact and relation to the current story. If falling under the origin story legend archetype, Brandon continues to capture the imagination of characters and readers alike. 
And that completes this section on the Age of Heroes and its legends. Although there will be further characters from this era popping up throughout this episode, such as Simeon Star-Eyes, Joramun, and the dreaded Night's King, the latter of whom will feature next in our look at the legend. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Of the Night's Watch. Unique in the Seven Kingdoms is the Night's Watch, the sworn brotherhood that has defended the wall over centuries and millennia. Born in the aftermath of the Long Night, the generation-long winter that brought the others down on the realms of men and nearly put an end to them. The history of the Night's Watch is a long one. Tales still tell of the Black Knights of the Wall and their noble calling. But the Age of Heroes is long done, and the others have not shown themselves in thousands of years, if indeed they ever existed. So, by the account just given, the Night's Watch was formed in the embers of the Long Night, although there's contrary evidence that they were formed and fighting during the Cataclysm. Just as Winterfell was once said to be a ring of forts, we suggest the Night's Watch was similarly refashioned, repurposed, and maybe even renamed when the Long Night had withdrawn. Regardless, they are an ancient organisation, the first militant order in the Seven Kingdoms, according to Yandel, and so they have seen much and more to form the basis of legends. Once the home of proud warriors and persons of good repute, the truth is that the Night's Watch itself has rested on a legend for thousands of years, which is the notion that the others are real and will come back. Yeah, Maester Yandel captures a generalised southern viewpoint here. Sadly, the most important truth about the Night's Watch today is its decline. It may once have served a great purpose, but if the others ever existed, they have not been seen in thousands of years and are of no threat to men. It is the wildlings beyond the wall who are the danger the Night's Watch now face. Yet only when there are kings beyond the wall have the wildlings ever truly presented a threat to the realms of men. So we can see why the Night's Watch has gradually become more of a home for criminals than being the widely respected order it was historically. But a dramatic irony persists. 
in the reader's knowledge of the other's reawakening. And this is a good basis for believing the legends over the studied expert maesters in some instances, we think. Yeah. Anyway, the organization recruits only males, so it's quite a lonesome place. It's lived through probably the long night, but certainly the age of heroes, and they have a tough, bleak existence. These conditions are ripe for storytelling and legend, where morals must be passed along, examples must be set, and entertainment must be sought. It's not surprising, then, that the Night's Watch offers an ample supply of legend, around ten stories brought to us with varying degrees of depth. And of particular interest is the Night Fort, one of the sixteen abandoned buildings neglected at the beginning of the books. The oldest castle at the Wall, dating back twice as long as Castle Black, and the biggest to boot, the Night Fort is said to have seen wars as legendary as the Stark King's takedown of the War King and his accomplices, the Children of the Forest. Such rich history is augmented by other tales, often more ominous and befitting to this episode. In fact, Every discernible Night's Watch legend we know of relates specifically to the Night Fort, and most have nightmarish qualities, drawing on horror tropes, which helps set a menacing, intense tone when Bran and his companions spend the night there. It's worth mentioning that Othul Yarwick and his builders have been ordered to restore the Night Fort for Queen Selyse. Given its history of nightmares, which we shall soon be exploring, there are those who think further fateful, dark tragedies will occur at the Night Fort in the future of this series. And why the Night Fort is so heavily associated with this brand of darkness, no one can be sure. However, one can speculate that historical ill deeds might have brought a dark shadow to the castle that could not be lifted. And whether the curse be literal or figurative, it all began with the Night's Watchman, who declared himself king. He was the thirteenth man to lead the Night's Watch, a warrior who knew no fear. And that was the fault in him, for all men must know fear. A woman was his downfall. A woman glimpsed from atop the wall, with skin as white as the moon and eyes like blue stars. Fearing nothing, he chased her and caught her and loved her, though her skin was cold as ice. And when he gave his seed to her, he gave his soul as well. He brought her back to the night fort and proclaimed her a queen and himself her king. And with strange sorceries, he bound his sworn brothers to his will. For thirteen years they had ruled the Night's King and his corpse queen, till finally the Stark of Winterfell and Jormon of the Wildlings had joined to free the Watch from bondage. After his fall, when it was found he had been sacrificing to the others, all records of the Night's King had been destroyed, his very name forbidden. The oldest of the Night's Watch legends, the tale of the Night's King, has been recorded by Archmaester Harmoon in his tome Watchers on the Wall, which incidentally is also the name of a very good Game of Thrones news site, so a shout out to our friends there. 
But our main source for the tale, we're glad to say, is Old Nan, who has recounted the story to Bran. And in the Citadel, they conclude that the tale is hyperbole, that a greedy Lord Commander wanted territory after marrying a woman from the Barrowlands. In styling the world book to be inherently unreliable, George has made his maesters, who should be the voice of reason, as fallible as the singers. We suggest there might be more wisdom in Old Nan than some of the crotchety skeptics on this occasion. And to hear Old Nan tell it, via Bran, the Night's King adorns the unlucky number 13, sometime relatively soon after the Long Night. And let's suspend our disbelief for a second and assume what we're told is true. He was a warrior who, so soon after the devastation, would have had a healthy distaste for the ice demons instilled in him. It's very curious, then, that this hero fell in love with a rather otherly woman. And forbidden love and going native is a common enough trope, from stories like Pocahontas to The Last Samurai, from Avatar to John and Egret in this very story. But here George twists the trope by heightening the taboo. In all the examples we gave, the lovers' peoples are at war, and the so-called civilized party is ultimately enriched and enlightened by the more primitive teachings of their partners. Here the opposition don't fire arrows, they murder and apocalyptically raise the dead and control the weather, and the Night's Queen's wisdom and teaching seems to revolve around the sacrifice to these demons, possibly of their own children. Yeah, and coming so soon after the night that lasted a generation, that caused impossible suffering for mankind, the Night's King seems to have been seduced into a string of the most dangerous taboos, starting with that forbidden love. It's no wonder his name was erased from history, and rather ironically, he's still being discussed. And so now we're going to make a few observations about the story. The Night's King sees the woman from atop the wall. It's worth remembering that the wall could have been very low at this point, with 300 miles of foundations presumably needing to be laid early in the process. And next is the woman, styled as his corpse queen. She had, quote, skin as white as the moon and eyes like blue stars. So this is unmistakably otherly. And I think the common assumption is that she is a female other. However, we've long held a slightly differing opinion on the basis of a couple of ostensibly unrelated blink and you missed it quotes from Game of Thrones and Clash of Kings. Talking about wildlings, we get this from Old Nan via Bran. Their women lay with the others in the long night to sire terrible half-human children. And then the same story is repeated by John. She used to say that there were wildlings who would lay with the others to birth half-human children. Furthermore, we see only male others and soon learn that Craster gives up only his sons to them as some mysterious form of homage. In short, we have no evidence of female others even existing. They might be an all-male race. If so, we must come back to Old Nan's teachings about others mating with human females and creating half-human babies. 
So what happens when these babies grow up? This is what we believe the Night's Queen was, given her looks and her proximity to the wall. And despite old Nan describing such half-breeds as terrible, remember in the books, George says he describes the others to be a beautiful and elegant race, which is in contrast to HBO's more zombified adaptation. So don't think of them as looking like that. George was, as our friend Eliana from the Maester's Monthly Podcast has said, trying to invert the ugly equals bad guy trope. And so there's every reason to believe a half-human, half-other would be attractive and not hideous. Perhaps this might explain the Night King's initial infatuation to some extent, especially if this woman was in fact half-human and could communicate and act normally. And the line about him giving his seed to her to us anyway, conveys conception. Coupled with the part about sacrificing to the others, we take it that there were offspring which we'll come back to. And next we see the man crown himself and his queen before using magic to enslave his fellow Night's Watchmen. It's difficult to say how many Night's Watch taboos he's knocking down because we don't know if they adopted policies like taking no wife and leader democracy in response to the Night's King. But regardless, it seemed he was utterly corrupted by the power his queen brought to him. And this power of enslavement seems very similar to the relationship between others and whites, which begs the question, was the knight's queen able to teach the king others' magic? Or was it also innate in him? Was it in his blood? Could he have been a descendant? We also wonder about the overarching purpose of the story and always ponder, albeit speculatively, if this tale could be about the other's blood entering the Stark line. The Starks are described with icy terminology from the off and their sword is named Ice after their mysterious original of the same name from some time ago. It might be a nice twist if there was a drop of imbued dragon blood in Targaryens mirrored by a drop of icy blood in the Starks. And to give an example of how this could happen, if the Night's King was, as Old Nan claims, a Stark, he could have left a child behind that could have been married to a Stark cousin, giving you a drop of other's blood in the line. This is certainly gliding over the rager's edge of tinfoil into unsubstantiated guesswork, but that's what you get with these half-told stories from six to 8,000 years ago. Mysteries from history. We still like it more than the Maester's version. <laughs> yeah, we do. There's just not enough crackpot from them. So we've sailed the gamut from the forbidden love trope to the forbidden blood crackpot, and I hope you liked our look at the Night's King. Next up, we have more blue eyes at the night fort. There was a knight once who couldn't see. Old Nan told me about him. He had a long staff with blades at both ends and he could spin it in his hands and chop two men at once. Simeon Star Eyes. When he lost his eyes, he put sapphires in the empty sockets, or so the singers claim. Bran, that is only a story, like the tales of Florian the Fool, a fable from the Age of Heroes. You must put these dreams aside, they will only break your heart. 
The story of Simeon's star eyes is scattered throughout the text and is frustrating inasmuch as we can glue together the fragments and still not understand exactly what it was he did to become heroic. Instead, intrigue is derived from curiosities such as his eyes. And let's begin there. Yes, Simeon is apparently blind, replacing his eyes with sapphires. Blue eyes at the night fort once again and sapphires are a very striking shade of blue. Let's review the description of slain night's watchman, Othor. His flesh was blanched white as milk everywhere but his hands. His hands were black as jafers. Blossoms of hard cracked blood decorated the mortal wounds that covered him like a rash, breast and groin and throat. Yet his eyes were still open. They stared up at the sky, blue as sapphires. Okay, so Othor is playing dead, but has already been enthralled as a white here, and sapphires are used to describe his eyes. It's no surprise, then, that the fandom has wondered if the truth of Simeon's eyes aren't really that he was eyeless and using gems as replacements, but that he had the blue eyes of an other or a white. If true, one has to wonder who or what Simeon Star-Eyes really is. The others might have some human habits, but they are still very inhuman in other respects, and it's impossible to believe there was an actual other serving in the Night's Watch. Similarly, an enslaved white also makes little sense. For us, the resolution might come once again from the notion of semi-breeds and others' blood and humans that we discussed with the Night's King. Simeon's blue eyes, and perhaps even Brandon Isai's Stark, might be indicative of crossbreeding. Magical bloodlines is a common enough theme in fantasy, and we can think of one wizarding world where pure bloods could vouch for that, not to mention the heavy insinuation in this very story that children of the forest blood cross to man after interbreeding, causing warging abilities in humans. And who Simeon was is a mystery, with his family name being withheld. We do know, however, from a close look at the Hedge Knight novella, that Simeon was seemingly high-born. It says, But they were great heroes, brave men of noble birth. And this is said after listing Simeon. And as we said, why Simeon is a hero is not fully understood, but it does say, and this in reference to Simeon and others, that they had all won victories against foes far more terrible than any he would face. So there are a few clues here and there. And clearly Simeon isn't only distinguished for his eyes. He is mentioned in the same breath as Aemon the Dragon Knight. And the fact that there are plays about him in the Hedge Knight further cements a notion that he was some kind of brave warrior hero with his double-ended staff. Finally, there's his connection to the Night Fort. Despite being an heroic figure, trust the doom of the Night Fort to bring us a scary tale. A terrified Bran thinks... This is where blind Simeon Star-Eyes had seen the Hellhounds fighting. So, we're told he was blind and had seen Hellhounds in the same sentence. 
This lends itself to many possibilities. Was Simeon really blind? Were there really hellhounds there? Were these the terrible foes mentioned in the hedge night, or was this a prophetic vision? With such limited information, it's difficult to call, but as we're known to fandom service from time to time, we won't say hellhounds fighting could be game ball, but we won't not say that either. (laughs) (laughs) In all seriousness, Simeon Star Eyes is a strange legend exposed across the books and through Duncan Egg. Its strength is in the ambiguity and the mystery it presents. We might not yet have heard Simeon's full story and hope his sapphire eyes will be on our page once more in the future. Maybe we will learn that noisy hellhounds, or wild wolves perhaps, are no match for a blind man that has a devil-bladed staff. And now from the blind to those who saw it all. Maybe it was the thing that came in the night. The Prentice boys all saw it, old Nan said. But afterward, when they told their Lord Commander, every description had been different. And three died within the year, and the fourth went mad. And a hundred years later, when the thing had come again, the Prentice boys were seen shambling along behind it, all in chains. So the dark tale of the Prentice Boys and the thing that came in the night seems to be on the myth end of the continuum. Part distorted warning from the long night, part Lovecraftian horror, and part bedtime Grumpkin and Snark story for frightening little boys. Yes, I would agree with all of those. And it noticed that all four of the Prentice Boys gave a different description of the thing, and so shapeless or shape-shifting monsters are a real classic in old horror. It falls under the Lovecraftian banner because of the emphasis on the unknown that's related to his style, the unknown or the unknowable. The fact that the thing comes in the night and keeps dead humans in thrall really echoes the others, and you would imagine those terrors are embedded deep in the old Night Watcher's psyche and would be passed on in distorted folk tales. And also notice the victims are named Prentice Boys. These are boy apprentices, alluding to the youngest of the Night's Watch recruits. It's small wonder then that Bran seems especially scared of this tale. It's one designed to frighten the boys. Ooh, and perhaps there's a few little girls out there that are getting scared too. Uh, Maybe a few big girls, too. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so to underline the dubious nature of its authenticity, the story alleges 100 years later, the thing was seen once more with the Prentice Boys in tow. So we guess there must have been some aged people at the night fort to recognise them after 100 years. All in all, this tale seems to be primarily about adding tension and fear to Bran's time at the Night Fort and creating a certain unease within the reader. And speaking of unease... 
he remembered what old Nan had said of Mad Axe. How he took his boots off and prowled the castle halls barefoot in the dark, with never a sound to tell you where he was, except for the drops of blood that fell from his axe and his elbows. And there you have part of the legend of Madax, which is drip-fed as Bran becomes increasingly alarmed in his environment. We also learn that Madax was of the Night's Watch, and so he was butchering his own sworn brothers. And once again, the terror comes from the darkness of night, with Madax also seeming to have mastered the art of silence, meaning that two of the victim's senses were lost save for this dripping of blood. It's a terrifying microtale, and one can imagine being in the desolate, abandoned ruin of the night fort, in the dark of night, and suddenly hearing a dripping coming from the wall. Drip, drip, drip. <laughs> okay, so this all adds towards the theme of Bran maturing, and in his mind, Old Nan is scaring him, whilst Maester Lewin is comforting, saying that... Old Nan's stories shouldn't be swallowed whole. These two oppositional voices perch on Bran's sides like shoulder angels, and remembering back to my youth, where the thing under the bed would often come to haunt me, this is exactly what it was like. The voice of fear versus the voice of self-assurance. Yeah, I had a thing under the bed too. And George captures the essence of that part of childhood rather well, we think. Of course... In the scene, all of this tension is working up towards a stranger entering the night fort at this scariest of times for Bran. Hearing heavy footsteps immediately reminds Bran of the rumoured large size of Mad Axe, before Bran wins his own battle and refuses to hide under the sheets. And we get this. He wasn't a monster beast, or even Mad Axe drenched in gore. Only a big fat man dressed up in black wool, black fur, black leather, and black mail. He's a black brother, said Bran. Mira, he's from the Night's Watch. Okay, so fortunately not Mad Axe, but Samwell Tarly there. And moving away now from the pure horror stories, we have one where the eternity of service of the Night's Watchmen are bound to is not as thralls of the others, but literally to the wall itself. Before the Old King, even before Aegon the Dragon, 79 deserters went south to be outlaws. One was Lord Riswell's youngest son, so when they reached the Barrowlands, they sought shelter at his castle. But Lord Riswell took them captive and returned them to the night fort. The Lord Commander had holes hewn in the top of the wall, and he put the deserters in them and sealed them up alive in the ice. They have spears and horns, and they all face north. The 79 Sentinels, they're called. They left their posts in life, so in death their watch goes on forever. Years later, when Lord Riswell was old and dying, he had himself carried to the night fort so he could take the black and stand beside his son. He'd sent him back to the wall for honor's sake, but he loved him still 
so he came to share his watch. The tale of the 79 Sentinels is one which carries a clear and resounding message. A large band of knights watchmen deserting their post and vows at the wall and inflicting themselves upon the honest lands as outlaws. As we see with Garrod, this type of behaviour is not tolerated now, even with the excuse of madness. So imagine how their Lord Commander felt in a time where the Night's Watch was highly respected and more in tune with its purpose. Yeah, it's a legend that instills fear into every young Northman, as well as the Night's Watch recruits themselves. However, this is not fear for fear's sake, as we saw with the Prentice Boys and Maddox. The 79 Sentinels is a cautionary tale designed to highlight laws and customs that shouldn't be broken. And typical of the night fort, the freezing alive of the outlaws is gruesome in that they were all made to stand facing the north, in keeping with their vows and in opposition to their southern foray. Yeah, that poetic justice enhances the story and makes it more appealing as a folktale. That's something you can also say about the ending, too. The twist that Lord Riswell, who captured and brought back the deserters for honor's sake, took the black in his old age to share a watch with his frozen son, brings sympathy to both parties and humanizes the story in order to once again elevate it above pure shock and horror in spite of the frozen grimness. And so, despite being a tale of deterrence and appropriate punishment, buried beneath the ice in this story is actually a message to love both your honour and your family no matter what. There's tragedy in the truest literary sense with a son bringing about his own downfall and his own loving father effectively condemning him culminating in a lot of drama in spite of the short page time. And themes of family, just punishment, and the breaking of societal boundaries recur in our next tale, yet another from the Night Fort Happy Hour. Hodor returned alone with both arms full of dead wood and broken branches. Jojen Reed took his flint and knife and set about lighting a fire while Mira boned the fish she'd caught at the last stream they'd crossed. Bran wondered how many years had passed since there had last been a supper cooked in the kitchens of the night fort. He wondered who had cooked it, too, though maybe it was better not to know. When the flames were blazing nicely, Mira put the fish on. At least it's not a meat pie. The rat cook had cooked the son of the Andal king, in a big pie with onions, carrots, mushrooms, lots of pepper and salt, a rasher of bacon, and a dark red Dornish wine. Then he served him to his father, who praised the taste, and had a second slice. Afterward, the gods transformed the cook into a monstrous white rat who could only catch his own young. He had roamed the night fort ever since, devouring his children, but still his hunger was not sated. It was not for murder that the gods cursed him, Old Nan said, nor for serving the Endel king his son in a pie. A man has a right to vengeance, but he slew a guest beneath his roof, and that the gods cannot forgive.
Despite being relatively short in length, the tale of the rat cook is one that seems to hold enormous weight to characters in the greater story, and is also memorable to the reader. In A Storm of Swords, George teases us with details to create a build-up. Yeah, first when we arrive at the night fort, we get this from Bran. This was where the rat cook had served the Andal king his prince and bacon pie. Then the boy hears rats and assumes they are the rat cook's children running from their father. Later, Summer bursts in, eating a grey rat, and Bran wonders if it could be the rat cook, before concluding that the cook would be white and was as big as a pig. Finally, Bran wonders if the rat cook had chopped up the prince and baked him in one of these ovens. And so, we're ready for the tale. Yeah, and what a story this one is. For some wrongdoing, a cook had murdered the prince and baked him in a pie with bacon. He then served the victim's father, the king, who was unknowing and who asked for a second helping. The gods cursed the cook, transforming him into a giant white rat, condemned only to eat his own young forevermore. But the twist in the story, after we learn the lesson, is when we discover that it wasn't for the vengeance he took that the cook had been punished, nor for the forcing of cannibalism, but for the breaking of guest right, a tradition that is sacred in many parts of Westeros. Yeah, so this is the moral message posited by the rat cook. Breaking of guest rights is more criminal than murder, cannibalism, or almost any other deed. As we understand, only murder of close-knit kin would come near, especially, but not exclusively, up north, where this tale is from. And the tale might also insinuate that vengeance is a right and give an indication of what the gods might consider an appropriate punishment for guest right violation. Given this inner story's place in the outer context, you can see where we're going here. Here, the Rat Cook tale is conveyed in Bran 4 of A Storm of Swords, around 50 pages after the Red Wedding where thousands of Northmen were brutally slaughtered in a clear and contemptible breaking of guest right at the Red Wedding. Now we have murdered Catelyn Stark turned vengeance-seeking Firewhite Lady Stoneheart plotting against the phrase, no doubt with the rat cook close to her broken heart. So, on a reread, alarm bells go off for us with Catelyn's rather out-of-place thought while trying to negotiate with Walder all the way back in A Game of Thrones. Catelyn would gladly have spitted the querulous old man and roasted him over a fire. Ooh, sounds nasty. And yes, a long-standing theory of ours is that this line could be foreshadowing Walder Frey's fate. Not only would the roasting be horrific, but it might precede a scene of cannibalism, something Wyman Manderley's Frey Pies in A Dance with Dragons seem to confirm is deemed appropriate northern justice for the breaking of guest right. And this justification more than likely traces right back to the rat cook. Yeah, and Catelyn took guest right very seriously, showing complete faith in its power until the phrase betrayed its sanctity to her horror. 
Tywin Lannister, a co-organizer of the Red Wedding, later questions, explain to me why it is more noble to kill 10,000 men in battle than a dozen at dinner. However, he's being disingenuous here, not only because it was in fact a few thousand killed at the Red Wedding, but that guest right has been a vital democratic principle for generations, and this is presumably why it's held in such regard. In the tale, it's noted that the king was an Andal, perhaps dating the story back to when there was conflict between the first men up north and the Andals. In such times, there would be need for safe discussion between rivals in order to establish and maintain peace. And so Gestrite became a channel to save not just the lives of diners, but of whole armies. And so when guest right is undermined, so are standards of diplomacy and peacemaking that have existed for thousands of years, and one can thus see why such a tradition is sanctified. Expect vengeance that will range from the thrilling to the stomach-churning through the winds of winter as George takes the theme of retribution to the next level, and he will perhaps seek to question the reader's own thirst for fray blood. And always keep in mind... That giant white rat, as Lord Manderley did at Ramsay and Fake Arya's wedding, singing a song for the rat cook with three suspiciously meaty pie wheels being served. And it's too bad Jared, Simon, and Rhaegar Frey couldn't be at that feast in person. Ooh. And just to end the rat cook discussion with a couple of observations, the World Book claims that some believe the Andal king here to be King Tywell II of the Rock, and by others, King Oswell I of the Vale and Mountain, although, as ever, it's shrouded in mystery. Finally, the tale and its presentation might have been vaguely influenced by H.P. Lovecraft's story, The Rats in the Walls, which shares themes of cannibalism and rats. And talking of sharing themes, we have more Andals and curses in our next tale. This was the castle where King Sherrit had called down his curse on the Andals of old. Okay, so we've called this one a tale, but rather it's a micro-story. The quote we read was the extent of King Sherrit's mentions, and so we have very little to go on. We speculate, then, that this was in the time when First Men and Andals weren't on great terms. Could some northern king have fled to the Night's Watch to request help, which might have been denied? Here we doubt the king was of the Night's Watch, because he appeared still to have his title, and he obviously had some huge grief with the Andals. We would guess, and not at all confidently with such limited resources, that King Sherrit cursed the Andals never to take the North in their conquest, which would have made it a famous portent given the North remained independent until Aegon the Conqueror. So, fleeing perhaps defeated king, desperate for help against his foe, curses the Andals to never extend themselves beyond the neck, which happens to become true, is our best guess for that one. We'd be interested in any other interpretations for that one. The curse is probably not gruesome enough to fit in with the other tales, so do feel free to shoot us your ideas across social media. And we do have an alternate idea coming up later on. Overall, the legend of King Sherrit's curse is defined by its ambiguity and its withholding, 
and might just serve as shading around the more fully formed tales of the Night Fort, although it certainly reminds the reader of the Night's Watch's roots in First Men culture that might still pervade today. We would certainly love to hear it fleshed out further in a brand POV sometime in the future, although there is also charm in the unknowing. And so, on to our final Night's Watch legend. Bearing in mind we've moved a couple to the Wildling section in cases where they are told on both sides of the wall. This legend, however, was ready to give everything he had against the Wildlings. Or, should I say, she. A hostage is a hostage, seems to me. That big sharp sword of yours can snick a girl's head off as easy as a boy's. A father loves his daughters, too. Well, most fathers. It is not their fathers who concern me, John thought. Did Mance ever sing of brave Danny Flint? Not as I recall. Who was he? A girl who dressed up like a boy to take the black. Her song is sad and pretty. What happened to her wasn't. In some versions of the song, thought John, her ghost still walked the night fort. I'll send the girls to Long Barrow. The only men there were Ian Emmett and Dolores Ed, both of whom he trusted. That was not something he could say of all his brothers. The wildling understood. Nasty birds, you crows. So the tale of Brave Danny Flint is first mentioned whilst at, you guessed it, the Night Fort with Bran. And although we immediately learn the ending to the story, that this character was raped and murdered, it's not until A Dance with Dragons that we actually get the tale. Yeah, this scattering of legends across books only adds to the intrigue. And in Dance, we come to a scene where John is allowing wildlings through the wall. The Night's Watch is collecting the young sons of notable wildlings as hostages. John notices that two of these youngsters are in fact girls dressed as boys and immediately pushes for them to be replaced by male counterparts. And when Tormund protests that there should be no difference between boy or girl hostages as their loving fathers will have to behave themselves either way, John thinks to himself... Rather ominously, it is not their fathers who concern me. And so we get to brave Danny Flint. As John tells Tormund, a girl who dressed up to join the all-male Night's Watch. What happened to her, quote, wasn't pretty, according to John. And of course, the reader is aware she was raped and murdered from the Night Fort chapter back in Storm. Tormund has no problem filling in the details for himself. And in some versions of the song, Danny's ghost still walks the night fort. John thinks of Danny Flint as he sends the young girls to Longbarrow away from any of the men he doesn't trust. Being an institution now of criminals and worse, Torment understands, calling the Night's Watch nasty birds. And so, brave Danny Flint is a tragic character who presumably joined the Night's Watch for honor's sake with the intention of fighting for good. The tale speaks to certain characters challenging of gender norms, Arya disguising herself as a boy and Brienne acting nightly amidst threats of rape are never far from the reader's mind when contemplating Danny Flint. 
And here is a folktale or sad song that carries a message, one that is thankfully heeded here by Lord Commander Snow. In most of the tales we've heard of the Night Fort, from the Night's King to the Thing that Came in the Night to the Rat Cook, there is some kind of monster or madman or curse present in the Night's Watch legend, staples of horror writing. Here with Danny Flint, however, the monster is the Night's Watch. A cautionary tale of what bad men can do, and one which echoes through time and into our own cruel world. No supernatural powers are needed for this brand of horror. And one day we might learn the lyrics to Brave Danny Flint's sad song, and if so, as Wyman Manderley insinuates, expect to weep. Okay, so that's it for... The Night's Watch stroke Night Fort Legends, and overall we have a collection of tales that fall under the horror genre, with H.P. Lovecraft seemingly an inspiration. Another influence of the sequence might be the classic Arabian Nights, also known as 1001 Nights. A ruler's wife is to be beheaded, so in order to delay her fate, begins to tell him stories. He can't kill her without knowing the endings, and so she proceeds to tell him 1,001 nights worth of recitals. That's in addition to her own tale being told as an outer layer, which is called The Frame Story by writers. Yeah, and these stories included classics like Aladdin's Wonderful Lamp and Sinbad the Sailor, and so Arabian Nights is a fantastic demonstration of the frame story and the story within a story technique. George borrows from this style at the Night Fort, where, as we saw, the frame story is Bran struggling to maintain his composure in his childhood House of Horrors. Within that frame, we have a selection of tales that related to the atmosphere of the outer layer. This manner of legend exposition is far more interesting than dry history telling, we think, with more complex dynamics. The stories within the story were often just a few sentences long, yet together bound up Bran's physical and emotional journey through darkness and fear, whilst filling the world with depth and ominous intrigue. And next we'll go further north still, beyond the wall, where the free folk have legends of their own. Men are men and women women, no matter which side of the wall we were born on. Good men and bad, heroes and villains, men of honor, liars, cravens, brutes. We have plenty, as do you. When Brandon the Builder erected the wall, not only did he make a barrier between his people and the others, but he also partitioned humanity itself. People living in the far north were, by either choice or ill luck, now blocked from the mainlands by the ice wall. 
The southern name for these people is wildlings, although it's not a term they themselves enjoy. They refer to themselves as the free folk, for without the advancements in technology and culture the southerners have seen north of the wall, the folk pride themselves on their freedoms instead. As the other's existence became mythological over time, the wildlings began to fill the empty void of bogeyman beyond the wall, due in part to continual conflict with the Night's Watch. The wildlings became tribal, and although proud of their culture of freedom and not kneeling, it seems they have pined for an overarching ruler since this feud began, as well as desiring a taste of southern existence where life might be less cruel and harsh. And so it should be no surprise that the wildling legends we'll discuss today often revolve around the themes of kings beyond the wall and wildlings trying to breach the formidable structure. Jon Snow's infiltration of the wildling camp encourages the reader to take on the perspective of these people, who are otherwise portrayed as simple savages by the Citadel, and seeing the wall through their annexed eyes is a great way to understand their legends. It's also wise to keep in mind the context of these legends on a meta level. At a time in the story where a king beyond the wall has arisen and against all odds has united the tribes into one cohesive unit. Mance Raider borrowed from history and legend to arise as a leader at a time when wildlings need to get south together or elsewise be united in their blue-eyed doom. And so, on to the first wildling legend, the very first, King Beyond the Wall. For thirteen years the knight's king and his corpse queen had ruled, till finally the Stark of Winterfell and Joramon of the Wildlings had joined to free the Watch from bondage. According to legend, Juraman was the first king beyond the wall, and the collision alluded to with the knight's king in the opening quote helps us date his existence. The knight's king had been the 13th commander of the knight's watch, so we can picture a time soon after the erection of the wall, when it wasn't such a high or mighty structure. And Joramon seeming to create a pincer here, with Brandon the Breaker on the other side of the wall, apparently highlights his teamwork with the King of Winter in bringing down the Night's King. This might show both parties understood who the real enemy was, which is a theme picked up by the Mance and Jon Snow dynamics. Yeah, and so with some irony, the Night's Watch was saved in part by a king beyond the wall in its early days. To this day, their castles are cautiously built, open-backed, to allow entrance from the south, and the Night's King's true name may not be uttered or recorded, but thankfully we do know some things about Joramon and his exploits. Okay, so nice to tie these legends together, and in Clash, we might have a clue what happened to Joramon when Lord Commander Mormont tells John of the Kings Beyond the Wall. Each man of them broke his strength on the wall, or was broken by the power of Winterfell on the far side. 
This is a very important piece of information as we wheel through these characters today. And so it seems that Juramun was ultimately defeated by the Night's Watch he helped to save, or the Starks on the other side who he'd once allied with. It makes for remarkable dynamics in the legend, and despite being short on details, it's easy to sympathise with Juramun here, we think. Who's to say that King Juramun's entire raison d'etre wasn't to simply get his people away from others? And bringing down the Night's King and breaking himself against the Night's Watch or Starks are still not what Joramun is best known for. Our first King Beyond the Wall is not only a legend himself, but is alleged to have possessed a legendary item, the Horn of Joramun. An item of such significance in the myth and legend discussion that it deserves its own spotlight. If I sound the horn of winter, the wall will fall, or so the songs would have me believe. There are those among my people who want nothing more. So horns are a recurring item in A Song of Ice and Fire. Some are magical in nature. There's the dragon binder, a kraken horn, and the horn of winter. With all horns, their power lies in their hearing, from the Night's Watch sending warnings to Dragonbinder, which presumably must be blown in the vicinity of a dragon. By their very nature, horns must be heard. And we're told of the Horn of Winter, Juramun's magic horn, which can allegedly bring down the wall itself. However, the notion that one toot from this horn will demolish the 8,000-year-old, 300-mile-long, 700-foot-tall wall seems very unlikely to us. Even in this world of magic, the wall having this deficiency seems somehow inconceivable from a cheap-trick meta-writing standpoint, especially with the fandom notion that the horn could be blown from anywhere in the world and still bring about this destruction. In universe, we wonder if the Horn of Winter having such implausible power is already debunked upon close inspection. In the books, one of the very few things we're told about the horn is that Joramun blew it. This is relayed to us not once, but six times through the books. George repeatedly reminds us that the horn has been blown. And given that Juramun was a king beyond the wall, against a knight's king who walked on the wall, we think it's fair to say that the wall existed at that time, and that blowing the horn of Juramun did not bring it down. Instead, we're told, it woke giants from the earth. And John wonders if this means the genesis of giants in Westeros, yet we know from the histories that they'd been around for literal ages, even helping to build the wall. With our opening statement in mind, that a horn's very purpose is to be sounded and then heard, the fair assertion that the dragon and kraken horns are for some manner of creature summoning, and the knowledge that giants are simple-minded beings rather than oversized humans, we propose that the Horn of Joramun is in fact a horn for summoning giants. Waking giants from the earth could be a romanticized way of expressing this, also making it slightly cryptic and mysterious. 
Yeah, earlier we mentioned that in order to have giants construct the wall and Winterfell, Brandon the Builder might have had a lot of sway over this race. Knowing giants built the wall, perhaps King Juramon decided that they were the ones to bring it down, and with his magic horn, tried to summon them. Over thousands of years of telling and legend, remembering Mance says it has been passed down by singers, maybe the horn became known as the one to bring the wall down. Yet perhaps in reality, Juramon had originally meant it as an indirect tool of destruction to summon those who would do the destruction. And in the current story, we see Mance Raider desperate to use the wrong horn entirely to negotiate a way beyond the wall, with the dramatic irony in readers knowing that Joramon's horn is, in all likelihood, the simple aurochs horn found wrapped in a Night's Watch cloak at the Fist of the First Men. However, the reader this time could be in Mance's position of overestimating the horn, wondering if one toot, even from thousands of miles away, will take down the wall and pave the way for the others. Always remember that the horn has been blown north of the wall without any recorded destruction, instead merely waking giants. Perhaps George is concealing a jaw-dropping way for the wall to be breached, and our aurochs horn would have provided an interesting diversion whilst becoming an important symbol of wildling freedom in story. It's also worth noting that the wall needs only to be fractured, not completely leveled, which means the Night's Watch wouldn't be immediately wiped out and is also, we think, more keeping with the parameters of realism that George likes to set amidst the system of magic. And so that's our crackpotting on the Horn of Winter, and we hope that you've enjoyed a different perspective on this subject, whether you're with us or whether you're not. Next up, we'll see another legendary way to beat the wall as we go down in the caves. You know nothing, Jon Snow. It went on and on and on. There are hundreds of caves in these hills, and down deep they all connect. There's even a way under your wall. Gorn's way. Gorn? Gorn was king beyond the wall. Aye, together with his brother Gendel, 3,000 years ago, they led a host of free folk through the caves, and the watch was none the wiser. But when they come out, the wolves of Winterfell fell upon them. The legend of Gendel and Gorn is one that is known on both sides of the wall, and in that sense has a differing meaning to different people, a theme carrying through most of these wildling legends. Here, Egret and John both provide the exposition, learning from the Free Folk and Old Nan respectively, and on this occasion, the two accounts diverge considerably. So, Gendel and Gorn were brothers who shared the King Beyond the Wall title. They wanted to get south, and so used an elaborate cave network to travel with an army of Free Folk, undetected, under the wall. 
They evaded the Night's Watch, and remember the Black Brothers were a far more impressive outfit in those days, only to find themselves in battle with a stark host on the other side. And Gorn seemingly fought well, slaying the king in the north, until the dead king's son picked up his father's crown, assumed leadership, and cut down Gorn in turn. The noise of this battle alerted the Night's Watch, who rode out to join the fight. Gendor was thus surrounded with foes, the Umbers, Black Brothers, and the Starks, entrapping him and the Wildling host. From this impossible situation, says John, Gendel met his final doom. However, Egret disagrees, having heard different teachings. You know nothing, Jon Snow. Gendel did not die. He cut his way free through the crows and led his people back north with the wolves howling at their heels. Only Gendel did not know the caves as Gorn had and took a wrong turn. She swept the torch back and forth, so the shadows jumped and moved. Deeper he went and deeper, and when he tried to turn back, the ways that seemed familiar ended in stone rather than sky. Soon his torches began to fail, one by one, till finally there was naught but dark. Gendel's folk were never seen again, but on a still night you can hear their children's children's children sobbing under the hills, still looking for the way back up. Listen, do you hear them? And after John replies with scepticism that he can only hear falling water, Egret comments that Gorn's way is lost, and those who search for it end up as food for Gendel's hungry children. So, a grim conclusion to the wildling version of this story, which unashamedly stretches into a tall tale. The story, as it's told in the caves, is reminiscent of the Night Fort stories in its accentuating of mood, tension, and the natural environment. It can be viewed as both free folk fantasy and cautionary tale. On one hand, there is a brave King Beyond the Wall Brotherhood who finds a way to bring an army south. Furthermore, they evade the Night's Watch and Gorn kills the King in the North. All of these plot points are very attractive to the listening ears of the Wildlings and explains why this tale has endured thousands of years of storytelling. However, the kings beyond the wall, for all their efforts, cannot beat the Northmen. In spite of the king in the north dying, a new king immediately takes his crown and has his revenge on Gorn. Gendor retreats, only to become lost, creating a cannibalistic curse. These factors seem to urge caution regarding invasion and navigating the underground labyrinth, which would be a sage lesson to young wildlings. It would also explain the appeal in the tale coming from a southern perspective, moreover with their own abrupt version of the ending. Overall, Gendel and Gorn is a very interesting and effective legend, which not only adds mood, depth, and message, but also, with its different endings, reminds the reader of the inherent differences between Jon and Egret as he begins to sleep with the enemy. And on the subject of horny lords, here's another from Days Gone By. The Horned Lord would follow after Gendelung Gorn a thousand years later. His name is lost to history, but he was said to have used sorcery to pass the wall.
Perhaps the most mysterious of the Free Folk legends is the Horned Lord, another king beyond the wall he's mentioned sparingly through the books. The Horned Lord came south, apparently using sorcery to pass the ball. Sorcery seems to have been this king's forte, as Dalla recounts to John, We free folk know things you kneelers have forgotten. Sometimes the short road is not the safest, Jon Snow. The Horned Lord once said that sorcery is a sword without a hilt. There's no safe way to grasp it. With so few mentions, the Horned Lord is the wildling's version of King Sherret, an unknowable legend. Funnily enough, these two share some things in common, remembering Sherrit was a sorcerer who cursed the Andals from the wall. And given the Horned Lord's real name has been lost to time and that both were kings and magicians in a similar place at a possibly similar time, we do wonder if our Horned Lord and King Sherrit could be one and the same person. While suitably thin on evidence, There are certainly some similarities between these enigmas of folklore, and we think it's an interesting angle to consider in light of so many wildling stories also having adjoining northern components. Next up is a king who truly knew what it meant to experience both sides of the wall. Long before he was king over the free folk, Bale was a great raider. The start in Winterfell wanted Bale's head, but never could take him, and the taste of failure galled him. One day in his bitterness he called Bale a craven who preyed only on the weak. When word of that got back, Bale vowed to teach the Lord a lesson. So he scaled the wall, skipped down the king's road, and walked into Winterfell one winter's night with harp in hand, naming himself Sigurik of Skagos. Sigurik means deceiver in the old tongue that the first men spoke and the giants still speak. North or south, singers always find a ready welcome, so Bale ate at Lord Stark's own table and played for the Lord in his high seat until half the night was gone. The old songs he played and new ones he'd made himself, and he played and sang so well that when he was done, the Lord offered to let him name his own reward. All I ask is a flower, Bale answered, the fairest flower that blooms in the gardens of Winterfell. Bailabard is an enduring legend north of the Wall, where he's thought to be a true historical figure, evidenced by songs and tales he left behind. However, at Winterfell, the old chronicles say nothing of him, and perhaps there is good reason for this discrepancy, as we'll see. The first thing to note about this legend, told by Egret after her capture by Jon, is that it is a lengthy story compared to most other legend, and this gives George the opportunity for pervasiveness. As we'll see, the telling echoes through the stories of Bran and Osha, Mance, Egret and John, and it also relates to R plus L equals J. Bale, seemingly in the time before he became King Beyond the Wall, was a notorious wildling raider. The Stark in Winterfell, unable to kill him, tried to disparage Bale's reputation. The wildling took revenge by climbing the wall and infiltrating Winterfell as a bard. 
Now singers are highly valued, and so Bale played his songs and asked for a rare blue Winterfell rose in payment. But the blue rose turns out to be a euphemism, and it's the Lord's only daughter that the bard really wants to pluck. One day she's gone, with Bale leaving the literal blue rose on her bed. Nobody could find the maid, nor the bard, until one night she appeared back in her bedchambers with a baby. Bale had outsmarted the Stark household by hiding with the maid down in the Winterfell crypts, and now the Stark heir was of Bale's seed. This is the end to one version of the story, but there is a second, darker ending. Yeah, 30 years later, and Bale was king beyond the wall. He led a host south to invade and faced his own son, the baby from the tail who is now grown. Bale would not harm his own kin, so his son killed the father unknowingly. The son's ignorance of his own lineage was no excuse for the gods, and when he returned to Winterfell, his mother threw herself from a tower in grief at Bale's demise. And soon the son followed her to death, captured and flayed by one of his lords. John doubts the tale, but it's not necessarily fantastical given so many elements of this legend play out in the story at some time or another. Yeah, let's begin with Mance, brought in parallel with Bale several times. First of all, Mance infiltrated the Winterfell royal feast in A Game of Thrones, spying on King Robert and Ned. He climbed the wall and eventually entered Winterfell as a singer much like Bale. Here's what he says about his inspiration. Would that I were him... I would not deny that Bale's exploit inspired mine own, but I did not steal either of your sisters that I recall. Bale wrote his own songs and lived them. I only sing the songs that better men have made. So, Mance is rather humble when drawing the comparison, yet it's clear that Bale is a huge inspiration to him, and later in the story he reprises his role as Bale Come Again when he leads the Spearwives to another infiltration of Winterfell. This time he styles himself as Abel, which is an anagram of Bale. Abel the Bard sings at Ramsay and Fakaria's wedding and subsequent feasts, and once again Bale is a great influence to his fellow King Beyond the Wall, showing how powerful Poussin's songs and tales can be upon the characters in-universe. The next point of comparison is between Bale and Bran Osher and those who hide down in the Winterfell crypts. Close attention must be paid here to the sequence of events. In A Clash of Kings, chapter 50, we see Theon looking for Bran and company, desperate to contain his ill deeds and regain his missing hostages. The reader is left to ponder their whereabouts, and right next door, in chapter 51, that's where we get the tale of Bailabard hiding down in the crypts from Egret. Yeah, the sequence here is frighteningly clever, as Bale's legend serves as a direct clue to the adjacent mystery. And Osha being with Bran might explain where they got the idea. The wildling had surely heard of Bale's escapades, and with the boys' navigation, it's no wonder, in hindsight at least, that they were able to evade capture in this manner. The story also centres on a winter rose, which is central to the R plus L equals J theory. 
The blue rose is used in Bale's tale, at first as a symbol for the Stark daughter herself, and then as an allusion to her sex. We have a blue rose, a Stark maid, a harpist, and ultimately a baby. A familiar concoction for R plus L equals J theorists. And given Rhaegar presented Lyanna with a round wreath of blue roses sliding from the end of his lance, according to the world book, Bale the Bard might not be the only time the rare flower is used as a sexual euphemism. What RLJ purports is that the product of that union is none other than Jon Snow, represented by a blue rose in the House of the Undying. And besides this, the tale is pertinent to Jon in other ways too. This tale, almost befitting to the cuckoo-in-the-nest concept, sees a half-wildling child in the Stark line, exploring once more the similarities between past and current Northmen and wildlings. John and Egret's story frequently compares and contrasts both parties to blur the line between one and the other, as John faces difficult decisions about his own allegiance. Ultimately, though, we're left with the notion that, despite cultural differences, these two peoples are carved of the same flesh and blood. So when Egret says of the Bale story that, So there it is, you have Bale's blood in you, same as me, it resonates with the reader's sympathies towards those born beyond a man-made barrier, classed almost as an alien lesser species. With this issue of shared heritage, it reminds us that wildlings and Starks have much in common, dating back to First Men days, and according to the legend, even more than the lords of Winterfell might care to acknowledge. And of course, the relations, romance, and notion of partner-stealing between wildlings and Stark echo in the outer story deftly. And so next, there is some brief history exposed, that of, quote, some lord flaying a Stark of Winterfell, and now more commonly known historical occurrence. The mentioned lord is sure to be a Bolton, and so this small sentence at the end of the Bale story also functions as a clue towards the Bolton's betrayal of the Starks and Theon's upcoming treatment by Ramsay. Finally, there is a resounding moral lesson being taught by the so-called darker ending. Unknowing kinslaying occurs from son to father. Egret mentions the gods hate kinslaying, insinuating the mother's suicide was some form of justice. Like Guestright, kinslaying is a huge northern taboo, similarly because it's such a threat to social order and stability with its potential for long-standing internecine conflicts. So overall, Bail the Bard, wow, what a legend, it's really fantastic. Pervasive in its parallels and influence, tying itself to several different aspects of the greater story very effectively, whilst also functioning as an appealing standalone tale in itself. Again, we see the Wildlings get one over on the Starks, only to ultimately fail, producing a familiar bittersweet feel no matter which side of the wall you stood. And no wonder they sing Bale's praises amongst free folk whilst there's no records at Winterfell.
Yeah, whether that's through the obfuscating of shame or simply because it's pure myth is down to you listeners to decide for yourselves. Regardless, we can't say enough good things about Bale the Bard and his impact on the plot, and we hope you all enjoyed the legend as much as we do. And up next is a more recent legend about a king kissed by fire. If the climbers reached the top of the wall undetected, everything changed. Given time, they could carve out a toehold for themselves up there, throwing up ramparts of their own and dropping ropes and ladders for thousands more to clamber over after them. That was how Raymond Redbeard had done it. Raymond, who had been king beyond the wall in the days of John's grandfather's grandfather. Jack Musgard had been the Lord Commander in those days. Jolly Jackie was called before Redbeard came down upon the north. Sleepy Jack forever after. Raymond's host had met a bloody end on the shores of Long Lake, caught between Lord Willem of Winterfell and the drunken giant, Harmond Umber. Redbeard had been slain by Artos the Implacable, Lord Willem's younger brother. The watch arrived too late to fight the wildlings, but in time to bury them, the task that Artos Stark assigned them in his wrath as he grieved above the headless corpse of his fallen brother. The final king beyond the wall before Mance revived the tradition was Raymond Redbeard, who brought the wildlings together around 212 AC. In 226 AC, the hosts climbed over the wall en masse, fighting their way to Long Lake. With no Night's Watch to be seen, Lord Willem Stark defended the north, trapped Raymond against the lake, with Lord Harmond Umber's host aiding. And by the time the Night's Watch arrived, the wilding battle had been lost, with Artos Stark slaying Raymond. Unfortunately for Artos, his elder brother Willem, apparently the most fearsome warrior of his time, had already been slain by Raymond. Once again, this legend can be viewed from both sides. Raymond hits the apex of killing the Lord of Winterfell, only for the Lord's brother to take revenge. By now, these King Beyond the Wall tales do seem similar in their conclusion. This time, in a legend which seems more like plain history than most, given its close proximity to the main story, the message might be more about the depletion of the Night's Watch. Yeah, the twist at the end is that their commander is dubbed Sleepy Jack Musgard, and his men are tasked with the mass burial, for which the World Book pointedly tells us was one task at least they performed admirably. For Raymond Redbeard's part, despite defeat, he remains an inspiration to his people, with Garrett Kingsblood keen to claim a seemingly tenuous Redbeard lineage. We wonder if the Duncan Egg series will fill in more details about Raymond and Jack, given it seems to be in the right time range. In its context, the story of Raymond Redbeard comes early in A Dance with Dragons, where John is struggling with the complicated rule of the Night's Watch, worries about wall climbers, and how he'll be remembered as a leader. 
He intends that it's not to be as Sleepy John Snow, and following the wildlings' admission south, his next foe to be arriving at the wall might be the others, so let's hope there's not a similar incompetence to Sleepy Jack and his Night's Watch snoozers. And speaking of people coming through the wall, we have one more wildling legend, and the first not to be a king beyond the wall. Arson Isaacs had been halfway through the wall when his tunnel was found by rangers from the night fort. They did not trouble to disturb him at his digging, only sealed the way behind with ice and stone and snow. Dolores said, used to say that if you pressed your ear flat to the wall, you could still hear Arson chipping away with his axe. Arson Isaacs is a seldom mentioned yet apparently well-known legend on both sides of the wall. It's first mentioned by the Magnar of Then to Jon Snow, who also knows the tale and is yet another frightening story that has associations with the Night Fort. Yeah, Night Fort Rangers found Arson tunneling through the wall and simply sealed him up inside as he continued to dig, oblivious to his predicament. Like Gendel's children and the rat cook, his punishment is eternal, according to the rather dubious part of the legend, with rumors of his axe picking at the wall still prevalent and providing some comedy via Ed Tollett. Yeah, this is another story that seems cruel or just, depending on where you're standing, and shares some parallels with the 79 Sentinels that we covered earlier. Just as the Sentinels were given an horrific yet rather poetic end, encased alive in ice, so was Arson, whose fiery name, Arson, might be ironic given his fate. And perhaps the most interesting aspect of this parallel, though, is that just as the Sentinels are forever facing and guarding the North, so is Isaac compelled to dig southwards forevermore. You can see the poetry in this aspect of the legend for Northerners and wildlings alike. Okay, so overall, a rich collection of free folk legends, most of which share common themes. Many function on both sides of the wall, creating both mutual tensions and understandings, as well as bittersweet elements with pride and disappointments for all parties. And one factor we noticed is the variety of different ways the free folk attempted to traverse the wall. Joraman had a horn and seemingly wanted to destroy the structure. Gendel and Gorn wanted to sneak under it. The horned lord passed it with magic. Bale climbed it alone, Raymond's host climbed it en masse, and Arson tried to dig his way through it. We wonder if the others will follow suit from any of these when they come to breach the wall, or if they will find another way entirely. And so that completes our look at the myths and legends of the North. The free folk legends were typical of what we saw up North, those that speak to the culture and history from whence they came, And we really hope that we've highlighted the plethora of ways that the inclusion of such tales benefits the greater story. We trust that you're thirsty for more myth and legends when we look at the south and eventually across the narrow sea too. 
And sweet summer children, I hope you've enjoyed listening to these tales of the North today. If you feel like showing your appreciation, consider supporting Radio Westeros on Patreon. For a few dragons, you could earn a variety of benefits and keep Radio Westeros going through the long night to come. That's right, and thanks so much to Old Nan for sharing her wisdom with us. And as usual, now it's time to give credit where credit is due. Thanks, as always, to George R.R. R. Martin for taking the time to give Westeros a history rich in legend and mythology, and to Kevin MacLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. And we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel and Castle Steel levels. Heartfelt thanks to... Mark Joseph, a.k.a. The Snow in Winterfell, Alexis, Amber, Cinder of the Citadel, Chris K., Marge of the Mage, Jessica, Joe, June, Kirk, Mary H. of House Stark, Painkiller Jane, Rusted Revolver, John H., Lady of the Frostbangs, William James, Sir Bobby the Knight, Thrower of the Valyrian Steel Chair, Maltude, Melitza, Yorlen, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, J.M., Demetrios, Matt, The Mad Maester of Castle Black, Oxheart, Eliana Targaryen, Buxton, Boss, Arrodo, Sir Kobe of House Stonesmith, Words or Wind, Deeds or Stone, Joy, Josh, Whitney, Marcel, Matthew, Aaron, Joshua, Aileen, and Lady Dialers of Castlenaki, the Alpha Patron. And thanks as well to Matt, Dutch, Defender of the Berm, the Red Woman, Anne, Sully, Christina, Clay, Faceless Miami Man, Jim, JT was here, Monaro Geek TV, Patrick, Scott, Tammy, Goldie Juke, Tim, Clarissa, Lady Storch, Ezra, Rachel, Vince, Bright Magpie, Joseph, Kevin, Doc Deckard, Adam, Danielle, Tana, Elizabeth, Dennis, Sin Bobby Joe, The Orange Man, Emma, Jeffrey, Sarah, Victoria, Yoan Longbeard, The Well Red, Wine Gobbler from Ultima Thule, Judson, Roger, Jordana, Lauren, Cat of the First Men, Marjorie, Crimson Kate, Cajun Khaleesi, Emily of the Erie, Terry, Jake, and Kathleen the Ruthless, captain of the Ironborn ship Night Terror, whose motto is, don't fall asleep. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all of our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal, and comment on our content there. Or find us on YouTube, and of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with more on The War of the Five Kings. Bye for now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.